0: Welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, Today I'm joined by Professor Jo Neal to talk about um, her latest paper published in Addiction titled How do patients feel during the first 72 hours after initiating long-acting injectable buprenorphine? and embodied qualitative analysis. Um, uh, professor Jo Neal is a professor of addictions qualitative research at the National Addiction Centre at King's College London. Uh, welcome to Addiction Audio, Joe. Hi
1: Rob, thanks for
0: inviting me. Before we kind of get into the uh, the, the kind of substance of your your research, this is a this is a study about uh, long acting buprenorphine, and that's come quite um quite visible i guess over the last couple of years uh, for people who aren't aware of what that is and its significance in addiction treatment can you just give an overview of of long acting uh, buprenorphine in this case it was uh, buvidal i believe
1: yeah so historically we've had relatively limited treatment options for people who are dependent on opioids the options are still relatively limited to be honest but in recent years we've had the emergence of these long-acting formulations and they're basically, the name is in the, the clue is in the name there, that you um, have them either in implantable form or in a deco injection form and then the medication is released slowly over a period of weeks or months rather than having to go for daily dosing and uh, the the one that we were looking at was uh, an injectable form of buprenorphine medication.
0: Okay and and so this is uh, this has been kind of useful because um particularly during the covid pandemic it enabled people who were on say daily uh daily medication to transfer to say weekly or or monthly uh, depot injections. But has that, has that popularity kind of persisted following um the pandemic?
1: Well, it kind of predated the pandemic really because obviously the medication was coming on stream and becoming available really prior to the pandemic. So It has many potential advantages for people. And one of those obviously is it reduces the need for daily dosing. People don't have to go to the pharmacy every day. They can just uh, go to the clinic for their injection once a week or once a month. Um, That obviously has benefits in terms of freeing up time for them, potentially reducing the stigma of having to go to the pharmacy. In countries where people have to pay for dispensing, it saves them some money. But that doesn't mean to say it's necessarily right for everybody, because obviously there are people there who probably don't mind going to the pharmacy every day, give them some contact, some scripture. Um, So there are uh, uh, pros and cons, but one of the large benefits that has been raised is that it does reduce this need for constantly having to go to services, which obviously frees up time for clinicians and pharmacists as well.
0: Um, and so th- this particular study, I know you've, you've, you've looked at this area before, but this particular study looked at the first 72 hours following um, administration of the, of the depot injection. Um, why did you focus on, on that particular time, time frame?
1: Okay, so that's not quite... Accurate, in that the study is actually a longitudinal study. So what we were really interested in prior to this, we'd done work looking at what people kind of anticipated or expected about having the medication. And that was because when we did those studies, the medication wasn't yet available. After it became available, people started to do real world studies looking what the experience of having the treatment was like. And there was a few qualitative studies emerging or have emerged. And so we designed a study that was longitudinal. So we wanted to actually track people's journeys. So we wanted to interview them within 72 hours of having the first injection within a week, within a month, within three months, within six months and within a year to actually plot their journey. So if you like, this paper is um, an analysis of some of the first wave of that longitudinal study.
0: So, So this is so it was a this was the first of several interviews and this happened within those first 72 hours. Yes, um, and that
1: and that was because we wanted to get very close to how people felt when they'd had the injection. You know, at the very start of their journey, when it was very fresh in their mind, when any of those anxieties or worries might be to the full.
0: Okay, uh, 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 and there was um, so there was one um, there was one note within the background which I find find kind of interesting, and well, we can just edit out this question if it if it turns out to be completely irrelevant. Um, but what why does so you you talk about a uh, peak buprenorphine concentration occurring within close proximity to that initial eject- injection, but I saw that it appears twenty four hours after the weekly injection, and yet just six to ten hours after the monthly injection. Um, do you know why? I, I mean, I'm just I think I'm just interested into why those things are different. I'm no, not you, need a ph- you need a
1: pharmacologist to answer that question. <laughs> It does mean, from a practical point of view, it does mean that people have to... uh, There's a little bit of time for people to get used to the dosage and to stabilise, so it's not like they'll go in and necessarily feel perfect straight away. Um, It will take a few doses for them to kind of find a level and for the medication to settle down with them. Okay,
0: that that makes sense. So uh, you you looked at the data through through the model of kind of embodiment and embodied cognition, And, and in the paper you say... That that you, you chose this as a result of the complex data that, that you were getting. Um why, I mean, I guess why was why were the data so complex and 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 why did that mean that these were the right ways to look at it?
1: Yeah, okay. So as I say, we started off by wanting to know how people felt during the first 72 hours. And the reason for that is if you understand how people feel in the first 72 hours, you've got a better um chance of actually picking up any problems, addressing any anxieties that they might have, maybe reassuring people before they have the medication as to what it may feel like. And we didn't really have data on what it actually felt like when you just had the injection. So that was the idea behind the analysis. And then when we started to do the analysis, we saw actually it's quite complex. So people have these um, positive and negative experiences at the same time, simultaneously changing, Sometimes uh, there were positive physical effects. Sometimes there were positive psychological effects. Sometimes there were negative physical effects. Sometimes there were negative psychological effects. And when we started to map this out, you could see that it was quite complicated and everything was interacting. And that kind of brought us around to thinking well, the concepts of embodiment and embodied cognition are quite helpful here because they help us to understand how the mind and body interact how the mind and body interact and how that actually affects the way people behave and how all of that is kind of framed within the social circumstances and the lives that people are are in at the time so that was kind of the why the the reason we went to the theoretical framework kind of as we were doing the analysis and the findings started to emerge
0: that that makes sense and one of the complexities that you talk about in your results if we kind of Gently move in that direction. Um, was that the, the many many of the participants weren't weren't always sure whether the uh, the the feelings or the psychological um, impact was from the injection or from other things. I mean, some people talked about being hungover, um, and some people, I, I guess, experienced a kind of a relief from having started a new treatment. Were you able to kind of unpick which were direct a uh, direct impact from the uh, Bouviral and and which were kind of other factors?
1: In short, sure, not not really, because it, you know it, it is kind of complicated for people to unpick. And this finding is not just relevant to this study; it's very common in other studies we've done, which is people find it quite disin- difficult to disentangle, particularly with withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms are so ubiquitous. You know, is it a cold coming on? In in the context of when we were doing this study, is it is it COVID coming on? Um, somebody said, I've got some aches and pains. I mean, is that my rheumatism, you know, playing up? Mm. And I think that's part of trying to tease out that it's very easy for anybody taking any medication, not necessarily just boobie but any medication for any condition. It's quite helpful to know what the side effects are that you might experience, so you can be prepared for them. But then sometimes you are going to sit and scratch your head and wonder whether that side effect is a result of something else that's going on in in your life. And for this particular group, there were just so many things that could be affecting what they were feeling. But the 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 interesting finding was that these feelings often passed and moved quite quickly. So it was also quite surprising to see the speed with which some of these uh, side effects or symptoms changed. And not totally, but generally in a positive way, in that they kind of dissipated fairly quickly.
0: And uh, some, sometimes, as a result of of intervention that they'd done themselves, either you know, some people had um, you know, taken ibuprofen or had a massage or, um, or, or or taken other drugs to to deal with those things. And um, I, I find that really interesting that kind of interaction between the the medication, the feelings that it uh, that it invoked, and how people then dealt with them. And how that had an impact on what, what went forwards. Again, it kind of that that complex social setting.
1: Yeah, and it kind of speaks as well to some research we've done previously that I've done with Sarah Nettleton, who's a sociologist, and so much more uh, engaged with the literature than I can, can possibly be. Um, but the idea that actually, if you think about your body, you're not really most of the time conscious of it. And the same applies when you're using substances. When people are using substances, they probably don't think about the fact that they're, um, not sleeping well, that they're not eating well, that they're not, you know, that they've got constipation or that they've got a toothache. Um, so for many people, when they're using opioids a lot, a lot of that will be masked. But when they start to withdraw or come off the opioids, many of those feelings, and they can be physical feelings, but also emotional feelings that people have, it can be taste, it can be smell, it can be wanting to cry or to laugh, they kind of bubble back to the surface. So In kind of the embodied literature speak, it's we're mostly not conscious of a body until there's some sort of crisis or something kind of disturbs our equilibrium. Then when that crisis or equilibrium is disturbed, we find the need to do something to rectify it. So, for example, um, if we if we find we've got a toothache, we might go and take some paracetamol. You know, if we find we're too hot, we might, you know, wash our face in cold water or, or go outside into the cool air. And the same is applying really in terms of substance use, that when people start to come off uh, substances, their bodies start to function, kicking, do things that they probably did before they were using opiates. And then they often will take corrective action, if you like, to try and restabilize their body. So if they're feeling withdrawal, they might take more substances, even without probably thinking about it, because subconsciously they know that actually the substances are going to take away the pain with the withdrawal. So that's the kind of feedback loop, the, the way that the mind and the body kind of interact. Often, not even with the mind really thinking it through in a clearly rational way, it's almost like an automatic response.
0: It, it, it's that kind of that interaction between change, whether it's positive or negative, with a the crisis in, in a kind of... In a slightly less dramatic term than is, is often used nowadays, but it, it invokes this crisis of change, whether that's a positive or negative change. And I found that really interesting. Yeah. Um, which, which leads me on to the one of the um, the subheadings or the categories that you used was the mind in crisis. Um, where, where did that did that phrase come from uh, from the literature, from participants, and, and kind of how does that relate to the kind of physical crisis that you were talking about?
1: So it's quite interesting, I'll be completely frank and honest and open here, which is when we first drafted the paper before peer review, we had quite banal uh, subtitles, you know, positive effects, negative effects. And one of the reviewers pointed out that this really wasn't in keeping with the idea that you were drawing upon, you know, an embodied framework. So from that, I just re-looked at the headings and found headings actually captured what was a better descriptor and a slightly more descriptive descriptor of what what actually we were reporting so a, a shout out there to the reviewer whoever it was that prompted prompted that change in the subtitle
0: <laughs> excellent it's, it's good to get um credit for the reviewers where, wherever they are they'll know who they are so then on so some of the other findings just to kind of pick off a few of them um um there was, I, I, I thought it was interesting in, in that it was a, it was an area I'd not thought about before. But someone talked about the the notion that removing daily medication kind of almost took away a safety net, um, and that they they'd lost the the psychological reassurance of daily medication. And I thought that was really interesting because what I've read before about um, long acting buprenorphine is that, that it, it kind of adds a safety net, a long term safety net. But this person found that that had kind of gone. And someone talked, someone else talked about feeling as if they were trapped in sobriety so like i guess again on that psychological sense were there were there elements where that change was unnerving for people
1: yeah and that's kind of what we would have expected from previous literature i know that these long-acting medications are often kind of identified as being game-changing medicines and kind of wonder drugs that everybody will want but the reality is not everybody does want them and people will have problems with them they do make people feel on a level and not everybody wants to feel on a level uh, people do have reassurance from that habitual action of going to the cupboard and getting the medication every morning just makes them feel better so in a way that, that wasn't surprising to us because I suppose we didn't expect that everybody would find that not taking the medication daily would would be a relief. We were expecting that some people would would struggle that, with that, both um physically and psychologically.
0: There was you had some findings around sleep and people having either disturbed or actually Quite positively, wonderful sleep um, after um, after their depot injection. And I know you've looked at sleep before; it's something that you've been interested in for a while. Is this, is this does this relate to some of the other research around sleep and and recovery that you've done? Yes, it kind
1: of again maps onto what we would a, a, expect. That um, people who are using opioids do often complain of very poor sleep, disle- disrupted sleep patterns when they're using substances, again, it's not always necessarily apparent to them because their lives may not um, may not require regular sleep patterns. Once they start to come off the medications, they sometimes, again, not always, because I wouldn't want to say that everybody struggles with sleep, but it's quite common for people to report that they're struggling with sleep, particularly during that detox phase. That's really quite, quite common. And so here we've got people uh, they're not detoxing, but they're readjusting to a new level of medication. So it's not surprising to find that sleep becomes problematic for some. What was more surprising was that after seventy-two hours, a few of them were saying they'd had great sleep. That was that was quite a surprise.
0: Um, and 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 finally, in, in on your your findings part, you um, most of the findings here seemed to match the kind of embodied uh, and the embodied cognition framework. Um, but the finding about tobacco seemed much more pharmacological. You, you, you had an indication that people uh, smoked fewer cigarettes, smoked less and, and didn't like the taste when, when they did. Is, is, was that something that was quite new?
1: Again, yes and no. So we again know that when people are detoxing from medications, um, opioids, heightened sense of taste and smell is quite, is quite common. So I wasn't terribly surprised to see that. And if you think about it, if you suddenly start to taste and smell things, um, that can be positive or negative. So some of them were saying, oh, you know, I had a lemon. It tasted, you know, like really strong. And it was obviously a very pleasurable experience. And for other people, there was one person in particular who was very turned off by the smell of the air freshener, which became suddenly really very potent for them and kind of unbearable. Um, and again, that's part of the you know the bodily functions re-kicking in, but how people perceive that can be very can be very different. So again, it wasn't it wasn't surprising. The bit with the tobacco suddenly piqued our interest because hang on a minute, what happens if when your taste and smell suddenly comes back, it turns you off tobacco? Wouldn't that be an interesting finding? But in honesty, that didn't really carry through beyond just one or two people initially. So I can't say at this point if um, there was any real evidence that it would it would um, turn people off the back. I'm afraid.
0: Okay. Um, so finally, uh, and I think we might have covered this, but um, but I'm not quite sure. Um, you talked about cravings quite a bit, and uh, I, I've spoken with Ed. Um, it, it's one of the often underestimated part of opiate medication is the is the role in in suppressing or, or addressing cravings. Um and, and you said that cravings had a, a volitional and a volitional and cerebral dimension. Um can you kind of explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, we were trying to just unpick a little bit what people were actually saying to us. So there is this sense that um if you're craving a drug, you can't actually help but go and get it. You know, it's kind of a compulsion that almost you don't think about it, it's pre-reflective, you don't think about. But actually in the data as well, we had people saying that they had a craving, but they kind of cognitively reflected on the fact that because they knew they'd had booby dog, there would be no point in taking an opioid because it wouldn't have any effect on them. So again, it kind of speaks to this idea that people do have some control over whether or not they um, respond to the craving. Some people don't or didn't, and some people do. So again, just speaking to that complexity that we have to remember that it is quite complicated, that people aren't slaves to a craving. You know, they can stand back and say, well, that would be silly because it's not going to have an effect. And of course, there'll be other people who will say, well, it shouldn't have an effect, but I might as well give it a try and have a look and just sort of experiment. And that's very, um, very, very cognitive. It's thinking through the processes of what will happen if I use something now, I've had a medication that, in theory, should prevent me from having any effects, and I technically shouldn't be having any cravings. Um, so, <clears throat> with
0: this uh, with this information that that you have about the kind of immediate effects of of um uh, of, um, of long acting buprenorphine, um, what what are the kind of next steps? Are, are these? Is this the kind of information that will help to prepare people who are uh, uh, about to start a, a course of long-acting buprenorphine and, and and do you think that kind of knowing these things in advance will help people prepare for them or, or, or you know if you've got a headache does it matter that you know you're going to get a headache um i guess how will your findings feed back into people's treatment experience
1: so hopefully yes the findings have limitations and i can speak to that in a minute but in terms of what we can take away from this it, it does indicate that people's <clears throat> reactions to the medication are likely to be very varied. It does make sense, it would appear, for people who are treating people with long-acting buprenorphine to alert people to this complex range of effects that they may have, noting that some might be positive, some might be negative. It could change quite quickly over a short period of time. Knowing that uh, these reactions can be normal or expected, will at least help to reduce the anxiety for some people because people, if they're anxious about medication they don't know what it is and they don't know if this is a side effect, it can cause them undue stress. Whereas actually knowing that this is probably expected and if they just sit with it for a little while, it will probably disappear is one way of helping to address their medication anxieties, which may help to increase adherence. And it's also about letting people know, as I think clinicians do anyway, that if they are struggling with cravings, withdrawal symptoms, the medication may need adjusting and it it is possible to have an additional dose. So I I would hope that the findings as they stand have useful relevance to clinicians, but with the caveat that that we only looked at the first 72 hours, it is important to look beyond that to see what happens of course and hopefully our later data will give some insights into that. But also to recognise that we had a small sample, it was a small study, we from our sample size couldn't predict any patterns. Uh, We couldn't predict who might be more likely to experience positive or negative reactions. But that's not to say if you did a larger study uh, with a bigger sample size and more focused questions that you you couldn't potentially predict it. I would think it might be a challenge, but I wouldn't want to conclusively say that it's not possible. And so more research on this could be very useful.
0: Um, uh, Fantastic. Um, so this this study was was funded by cameras who uh, produced buvidal. can you perhaps for people who aren't aren't familiar with the experience of doing that, can you talk to uh, like how that relationship operates uh, throughout a research project and how you manage the the potential for i guess friction between what you need to do as researchers and and what um, industry might might want from research
1: yeah so first to state that obviously we're talking about uh a pharmaceutical company here that had developed a new product. Uh, It's only one company that we're talking about. and Obviously, relationships can vary across different companies with different products. And obviously, once you're working with industry, there are pros and many potential cons as well. So I can only really speak to this particular project and working with Cameras as a company. And I think it's been very clear all the way through from the contract that was drawn up with things uh, meticulously over any months, I have to say, um, that what whose responsibilities were what. But also on a practical level, as a company they've been very hands off. Um, we show them the manuscript prior to submitting it and they will read over it for factual accuracies. Have we got the dosages of buprenorphine or bupidol correct? have we said anything factually inaccurate about the medication? And actually, that's been very, very helpful because they picked up a couple of things that we haven't quite necessarily known about the medication, but they've been very hands-off, totally hands-off in terms of the findings as we would expect them to be. So all parties have adhered to their respective commitments on that.
0: uh, This was really interesting to hear, and particularly... uh the what sounds like a lengthy but very important contract negotiations at the beginning um yeah wonderful um okay um that's that's been fantastic uh, professor joe neill thank you so much for your time
1: thank you for letting me talk about the paper rob